0: All right, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement.
1: What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find In a case of lion's head. folks of different minds Because even though it did not share The opinions we share, all that American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz
0: all right, Brendan. So here we are, seventeenth of June, uh, two thousand and twenty-one. We're recording, um, kind of like almost back on our normal schedule. This is like a once a week kind of thing. I'm feeling, I'm feeling pretty good about it. What are we talking about this week? Yeah, I mean it's it's two weeks in a row,
2: so let's not pat ourselves in the back too hard yet. But it is good. We got you. You gotta walk before you can run, type thing. You know. So today's an exciting day and this is kind of fun because it's one of those days when the news aligns with what we were going to talk about anyway and so just within the last couple of hours uh, president biden has signed a, a bill making juneteenth a federal holiday juneteenth is going to be is june 19th uh, which is this saturday uh it was a state holiday here in massachusetts uh, just in, in the past year uh, and as a state holiday in a couple of other states but Uh, The Senate passed the the bill unanimously yesterday, and the House followed up and sent it to President Biden today, and he signed it into law. So we were going to talk about Juneteenth anyway, and it's it's really exciting that it had been passed at the federal level. And so we'll get into uh, what Juneteenth is, the historical significance, and why it's significant that it's now a federal holiday. And then in that vein uh we're going to talk about the the Tulsa massacre which uh had its 100th year anniversary just a couple of weeks ago and um dive into the the history of that and also uh the the present day uh, repercussions that 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 event has still continues i going to get into critical race theory a little bit because those discussions are very much intertwined and then we're going to finish up uh with a segment that I think is going to be cool and interesting in, in the spirit of highlighting some things that maybe you and I or other people out there might not be as well aware of we're going to do a couple profiles of uh, Black Americans who uh, maybe are, are off the radar a little bit. So uh, I'm looking forward to the episode. I think it, it should be fun.
0: Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm definitely looking forward to it. Um, a lot to, uh, A lot to dive into. Sure, uh, but before we get into,
2: into all that, uh, Ricky, I got a question for you. What's that, Brendan? Which one of which one of King Arthur's knights named the Round Table? Lancelot. <laughs> Circumference <laughs> and. That, as you may imagine, was brought to us by our friends over at Cannon Hill Woodworking. Badly, uh, that pun went geez. over my head yeah. for like a solid
0: four or five seconds. <laughs> Why are you asking me
2: this? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So our friends over at Cannon Hill Woodworking, who've been building handcrafted high-end custom tables and desks in Boston since 2018. That's Cannon with two ends. Uh, you can check them out on Instagram. Uh, speaking of Instagram, if you don't, if you are listening to this, and you don't follow us on Instagram we um, encourage you to do so. We had a really interesting poll, I thought, uh, this week, coming off our filibuster discussion last week, asking uh, our followers, like, would you, you know, if you had, if it was up to you, you're in the Senate, you're voting, you ending the filibuster or not, um, and it ended up 41% would have, would vote to end the filibuster and 59% would not. Um, So that was interesting. And of course, we always appreciate people's engagement in in those type of things.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think, uh and and you know it, as as uh brendan gets more savvy with instagram i think we'll get a few more polls and other and other interactive uh uh out, outlets or avenues for for anybody out there but as always i think we we love to get emails and text messages and all that other stuff too so but it was it was good to see what did the uh what did the final split end up being yeah it was
2: 41 percent for and in- 51 percent that would vote to keep would not vote to eliminate the filibuster which I think was interesting in and uh you know you look at you and I obviously both of us live here in Boston and, and most people that listen and follow us are in and around Boston or we know them from there uh so it's it's interesting where you have this big push in in some parts of the left to eliminate the filibuster and then you look at uh you know people that follow us who I think probably 10 liberal um and maybe that's a generalization of of our problems i don't i don't guess i don't know but um to see that you know maybe you know it's always just interesting to hear a broader perspective see a broader perspective on on these things and maybe the you know this urgency to end the filibuster isn't as widespread as you might be led to believe by some in the media
0: yeah yeah definitely uh helpful to kind of check in on the pulse of like and normal is kind of a, a funny word to use, but yeah, it's probably the right one. Yeah. Like the everyday right. well, person how they feel about stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right. Uh, well, let's
2: get into this episode. So, why don't, why don't you take the lead here and tell us a little bit about the history of Juneteenth?
0: Okay, uh, that that's definitely a tall task. I will try and um, and keep it brief. And you know, once once again, in in any of these things. To our very astute listeners out there, if you hear something that doesn't sound quite right to you, um, of as always, we we love we love to get corrected. But um, so Juneteenth is essentially the commemoration of uh, Union soldiers reaching the town of Galveston, Texas, which was sort of the last kind of Confederate stronghold. Is a little bit perhaps not the right word, but essentially union soldiers getting to this town in in Southern Texas to essentially say that, um, that slavery or chattel slavery, which we'll talk a little bit about is over in the United States, um, and slaves are freed. So, um, you know, people in their history classes will likely have heard of the emancipation proclamation, which, um, was an address given by Abraham Lincoln, then president on September 22nd, 1862, essentially saying that slavery in the United States is over. Um, the Juneteenth is commemorated on uh, June 19th, 1865. So if you're doing a little quick math in your head, that's about two and a half years later following the Emancipation Proclamation. Obviously there was a a little matter of a civil war in between, but um, that, you know, is how long it took essentially to, to free slaves from sort of the presidential declaration all the way, um, into this very historic day, June 19th, 1865. Um, as I don't know, I don't know if I have a ton more to say just about why this particular day is significant. I think a lot of it is, um, almost self-evident, but, Curious if you had if you would have anything to add to to just the significance of the day.
2: Yeah, so that, that was well done with the history. It really hit the high points. I want to talk a little bit more about the Emancipation Proclamation, which is one of, if not the biggest accomplishments, which President Lincoln is a kind of highly touted for and remembered for. So he gives the speech uh, in September of 1862, as you mentioned, and it and the proclamation is supposed to take effect. Does take effect on January 1st, 1863. But what the Emancipation Proclamation does is to free slaves in Confederate-held states. So while it's a significant jump forward uh, in, in, a, in a necessary step in ending slavery here in the United States, in reality, it didn't do a whole lot because it didn't apply to border states that didn't secede because Lincoln didn't want to push the, you know, Maryland's, Missouri's of the world into into the Confederacy. Uh, and for most of the northern states, slavery had already been e- either outlawed or uh, was kind of on its way out in, in the states that had stayed with the Union. And obviously, the United States, as you mentioned, was at war with the Confederacy. So the United States government had no power in, in all over the Confederate States. So the Emancipation Proclamation, like I said, hugely significant step in uh, in ending slavery and a huge except for Lincoln personally, which if anybody knows anything about Lincoln knows that he wasn't necessarily in favor of ending slavery throughout a large part of his life and had kind of some other ideas uh, around racial relations, uh, but evolved over the time to say that, hey, this ultimately isn't absolutely necessary, not only to win the war, but to end slavery in this country. So I uh, don't want to like totally minimize the emancipation proclamation, but it, in reality, it didn't do a whole lot. And so like for people, as you mentioned, there were, uh, you know, thousands, not tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of of slaves that were still in bondage through, you know, the the end of the war. And obviously this being the 1860s, like news doesn't travel, you know, news is not traveling quickly. (laughs) And exactly. And it's not like there was incentive for slave owners to tell their slaves that this is now like the law of the land, right? So even though um, Robert E. Lee, who's the general of the army of the Northern Virginia, which is one of the, is kind of the Confederacy's main army uh, surrenders to uh, Ulysses Grant and Appomattox in, in April and the war is over. And theoretically the emancipation proclamation can actually take effect. It takes a several months, as you mentioned, for you know union troops to get down to the South and, 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 bring that message to the people. And so um, one of the cool things about this is holiday, I think is that Juneteenth is what it's called when you combine words. I'm not going to, I'm going to blank on the the word of that, but I, it's it's a combination of June and 19th, Juneteenth. Um, So kind of an easy way to remember like what the date is and what it's for. Uh, And then I guess it was, it was celebrated um, by many people first in, Texas and then in the wider Southern community as like a day of it's the it's really their emancipation day as former slaves and it was uh, I think called like the day of Jubilee for a while it didn't really have like a a specific name but it was celebrated throughout you know a large part of the South I was like this is the day when truly you know chattel slavery ended in the United States
0: yeah and um I I think that term chattel slavery is one that I don't remember ever hearing nope. in the nope. history books and I and I actually in, in reading into this a little bit more, um, I love that distinction because I think when we learned about history, we learned about this period of American history, it was very much like a definitive, like boom, civil war's over, no more slavery. Like things are, are, uh, you know, they're looking up for America to be this land of the free and, um, you know, the ideals I think, and the values that that people hold, obviously slavery it throughout our history has been this this you know i'm mean, thorn in the side kind of minimizes it, but you know what I mean like in that we have had these hugely lofty ideals and values about human life and independence and freedom, and yet we were also this country that held on to slavery far beyond most of you know the other like kind of western type of powers and and really across the world there was no institution of slavery that kind of persisted as long into the 19th century as ours did um and this idea of chattel slavery so chattel really just means treating people as personal property which is an absolutely like it's mind-boggling to think about but also in the context of like how we were taught history that like Oh you know, you know, we we had this thing of slavery and like people were slaves and like but but some of them liked their masters and their masters were nice and stuff like that but when you like actually break down the fact the thought of like somebody being some human being being somebody else's property it is absolutely wild and so chattel slavery also means that like if you are a slave and you Had another child, then your child was also a slave because you were personal property. And so anything that comes out of you is also personal property. So there were a couple of these implications, but I think broadly today we talk about chattel slavery because right after, and, and perhaps we'll talk a little bit about this into Reconstruction, it wasn't as if, okay, all, you know, people are free now and they can. They can, you know, start to own property. They can vote. They can do all these things, right? There was maybe a period of that in Reconstruction that that things were looking up. But very, very quickly, we had these other forms of slavery, right? We had sharecropping. We had convict leasing. We had a bunch of different ways to re-enslave people, which in, in how I learned American history, like, it went from Emancipation Proclamation, freed slaves to, like, oh, we need to go to 1965 for the next, like, wait a minute. Things didn't all get fixed there. Now we have civil rights. Now it's all fixed. And then, you know, fast forward to today, and we're still kind of peeling back, like, what actually happened here? Yeah, I
2: have a lot to build off of and say about that but that as uh, that well i'm gonna save that for when we talk about critical race theory and in and, and history and when we talk about next segment uh i, I other things i was get
0: ahead of myself yeah, you know? yeah that is true
2: i uh, so something about juneteenth that I was thinking of so speaking of like not really knowing about it
0: i didn't even hear the term juneteenth i mean it has to be the last five years maybe same same yeah definitely uh, never in high school when i was when i learned history i don't remember oh, that. no no
2: so, and we'll come back to that later um but when I first heard about it, I was kind of like, "Oh, cool, whatever." I mean, I don't think when I first learned about it, I thought to myself that it should be a federal holiday. Uh, and you know, every, everyone kind of like likes holidays. You know, <laughs> they're like they're good things. You have the day off from work, and you can you go out, and you know, maybe you have some drinks with friends. You have barbecue. Uh, I don't know. Go to the pool. Even just get errands done. Right? They call it holidays. Are great. Um, so I wasn't like against it being a holiday, but there, there seemed to me no urgency to make it a, a federal holiday. Uh, but now that it is a federal holiday, and over the last year when like that momentum has been building, it caused me to think about it a little bit more. And I'm really glad that it has become a, a holiday. Uh, and I was thinking back. So Frederick Douglass gave a speech in 1852. And I, I believe it was titled like, what to the slave is the 4th of July? And his point of the speech, he was asked to speak on the 4th of July. And um, the first half of the speech, he he kind of goes into and he's like, look, I have a tremendous amount of respect for the, the people, the men largely that, uh, founded this country that that realized that they were um, being oppressed under under the the tyranny the monarchy of Great Britain and that broke away and wrote these beautiful documents the Declaration the the Constitution the Bill of Rights and he's like an unbelievable respect for these people as you know the the genius of these people and how rare it is for a country to produce so many brilliant men at, at one time and it's such a crucial time uh, and then the second half of the speech is but look. And like I appreciate you all being here and celebrating this day of independence, but this is your day of independence. Like this day is not a day for us to celebrate because we we are not free. We we do not have the same independence that you have here. It's a it's a really it's a brilliant speech. Um, we used to read it, and the kids read it in school. Uh, and it, it really that has stuck with me as I as this day has been approaching over the last week or so. In that you know you hope. Particularly now, when there is chattel slavery is over and you know, people are free, and maybe are more likely to look back, and and everyone uh, of of across you know racial lines can say can look back and celebrate the Fourth of July as a day of independence from Britain. But I also think it's fair for Black Americans to want to have their own day where they can really celebrate the day when they truly became free in this country, and not to say that Juneteenth is a holiday that's strictly for black Americans, it's a holiday where all Americans can celebrate the final end of, of chattel slavery in this country, which is something that everyone should take time and uh, reflect upon and celebrate. Uh, but I, I think to Douglas, like Frederick Douglas's point of July 4th, wasn't our holiday Juneteenth, in a lot of ways is a holiday for black Americans.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's, um, I think, I forget who it was, that said that it was like not so much a day for celebration, even though, you know, in the past it has, it has been like the Juneteenth Jubilee, but more so a day for commemoration because, you know, it's, it's important to remember that even though by law, some of these things may have happened earlier that like the, in the way that we understand history, like Dates don't necessarily mean, or words don't necessarily mean things until they come into action. And this is sort of the beginning of something um, in the United States. That's that you could argue. I mean, I think is evidently still unfolding today.
2: For sure. Uh, if we want to be a little more cynical. We could say that, look, the Senate passed this bill unanimously and the next day it went to the House and was passed. And I was on President Biden's desk and a few hours later it was passed. All great things. I'm glad it was all done. But then you look at bills that are like anti-lynching bills or uh, like let's protect people's voting rights bills and they are getting nowhere. So... I think let's let's kind of take that lens as like, hey, I'm really glad that Juneteenth is now a federal holiday, but let's also not lose this opportunity to be critical of some other areas that the United States like still has a long way to go on. And I think that's a nice place to transition into talking about Tulsa and critical race theory, which we will do when we return. Swing low, sweet. Child. All right. So the the Tulsa massacre, which I mentioned off the top, happened 100 years ago this year. It happened on May 31st, uh, 1921 in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, It's something that similar, you know, this kind of like a dark humor, similar to Juneteenth that I had never heard of until the last few years uh, has increasingly grown in um, national prominence. And uh, President Biden just, uh, he went there just a couple of weeks ago to, to commemorate the 100th anniversary, uh, which was a big deal. But let's, I'm going to throw this back to you, similar to Juneteenth, Ricky, tell us a little bit about the history of it, and then we'll talk about uh, everything that is, has flown, you know, from that.
0: Yeah, and, and this is another one where I think some of the exact details of the events, um because they really weren't properly recorded in history are are definitely vague. I'll give a little bit of background on, um, the area. So this occurred in the Greenwood neighborhood of Tulsa, Oklahoma and, and Greenwood at the time was a really a thriving black community, um, within Tulsa, Oklahoma, um, you know, there were movie theaters, restaurants, like this was like a really established place and had come to be known as like the Black Wall Street um, is is essentially how it was referred to. And um, the events of the, the Tulsa Massacre, which were also kind of de- described um, as as race riots, were essentially present. <laughs> What am I going to do? I got a dog. It just is what it is. Anyways, um, we're essentially precipitated and she's all fired up about, about what's going on. So, you know, I can't really blame her for that. So uh, essentially precipitated by another one of these very much like Emmett Till type of events where there was a lot of um, he said, she said about who uh, about, A black person being in, I think it was in an elevator or something with a white woman and what may have occurred in that, um, in that area or in, in the elevator. I mean, obviously, you know, in the grand scheme of things, those facts are, are almost irrelevant. What, what happened after the fact, um, is that, that, yeah, essentially you had white mobs, um, and, and and black people also in that same neighborhood, they were, they were clashing at one point, but then it sort of devolved into a, a far broader uh, sort of ransacking of this well-established period. Yeah. Sorry. You got, yeah. Yeah. I want I just want to hop in here because I,
2: so the event you mentioned, so it's a, it's a young uh, black teenager who's in the elevator where, elevator attendants. Um, and so there's like a, a white female who's the elevator attendant here. Um, she screams at one point, uh, the the Black teen of what happened, uh, the front page of the Tulsa Tribune the next day says that he had been arrested for sexual assault. Uh, people familiar with this time in American history know that like vigilante justice was still alive and well in, in uh, much of the country, particularly in the South. And so um, this black teenager was being held in, in the prison and a group of, of white individuals went down to dem- demand his release to them. So they were demanding that the sheriff turn this this boy over to you know, this white mob to essentially enact their version of justice on him. Uh, black armed black men then go and, and decide that they're going to defend the courthouse. They're not going to let this teenager just be handed over to this this white mob. Uh, I I believe it was 25 black men at first and maybe that swells to 50, 75, um, but they're facing uh, maybe a thousand white men at this point. And now when you have 50 black men that are armed around the courthouse, there's this rumor that starts to race through the community that look, there's like a black uprising here that's happening. There are all these armed black men out there that are threatening our streets, our community. And so what happens, Ricky, you can, you can pick it back up.
0: Yeah. I, I think that, that, uh, was was very helpful added um kind of historical context yeah i mean what what happens after that is essentially three days of burning and looting in this established black neighborhood where the entire city is basically burned to the ground um they i think officially record something like 40 deaths but um People who lived in and around that area, you know, estimated somewhere between 100 to 300 people were killed. Um, And and it was it largely went unreported. Right. Like, I think a lot of the only things that hit the sort of the newspaper headlines were like, hey, these are these are kind of race riots that are happening in Tulsa. Um, But it was a lot it was a lot more than that, um, a lot more insidious than that. And kind of, yeah, it's, it's very hard to think about, you know, what this, what this particular event means um, for American history, because obviously it's not, you know, isolated, we know about the Ku Klux Klan, and we know about a lot of other sort of similar events, like I brought up Emmett Till as, as one example of, of, you know, the vigilante justice or how, you know, how white americans at the time especially were thinking about protecting kind of white america um but this particular one i think stands out in today's context because um i think it really goes to dispel a lot of uh tropes i'm not sure if those are the right words stereotypes certainly of just like how um you know we think about America we're taught to think about America as this like the ideal the grand meritocracy of you work hard uh, you know you could pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and and there was almost this pervasive idea that the people that are not successful are therefore people who are not working hard and not doing those things. And here is kind of like an example that that a little bit flies into the face of that is that like we actually have seen, this kind of success before, and it was actually, you know, burned to the ground. And so there is maybe something more to the way that our system operates that isn't that true meritocracy that we think about. Um, I don't know. I don't know that these these are the kinds of things that I think about when I think about this issue. I'm wondering. I'm wondering where where you're at.
2: Yeah, I want to talk about the that maybe myth of the American dream being uh, equally attainable for all people, because I think even when I was growing up, so uh, my grandparents are immigrants and uh, you know, my parents didn't have like the easiest lives, but they, they worked really hard and like got provided really good lives for, like for me and my sister. And like, Growing up, it was kind of like, look, you know, my grandparents came over you know, 60, 70 years ago, right? And look, within a generation, my family's got like a nice little house in the suburbs. They're able to send me and my sister to college, right? Uh, it was that I like very much kind of bought into the narrative of, look, if you just really work hard, if you study, if you if you do the right things, you can be successful. And that is true, like for a lot of people, but it's not true for everybody. And if we look at this particular example, all of those Black people probably did exactly what like my parents and grandparents did. They worked really hard, they established businesses, their businesses were successful, they were able to provide, you know, nice houses for their families. And then it was all burned down. And if this happened to anybody, if, if your whole, if your business is burned down, if if your home, it, like I think there was like 1300 homes that were burned down. If your home, home is burned down with all of your possessions in it and then nothing happens. Like you, you have no recourse. There's no recompense. There's no justice. Like there's just, just no way to come back from that. And that is for anybody of any ability or any race to have your whole life burned down and taken away from you. And then like there, you, you just, you can't come back from that. And so that's where, you know, like you say, like these these myths, these stereotypes, the, the same things that I thought for a long time—they they start to fall away. And this is while this is systemic and it's a, it's um, affected communities in much more um, pervasive and subtle ways. In a lot of in a lot of ways, this is like a glaring example of, of like what happened, I uh, and what or what can and did happen for far too many people for far too long when your whole life is taken away from you. And then it's just like, all right, pull yourself up from your bootstraps. This is America. <laughs> it's like, oh, this is America. And I can't pull myself from the bootstraps because you won't let me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, I mean, that, that right there, I think says in an, in a nutshell, and I think we'll, maybe this is a decent opportunity to, to transition a little bit to critical race theory, but that the idea that uh, like, you know, the worst of America, which was slavery, ended with the Emancipation Proclamation or ended even on Juneteenth, right? I think that was really what was the most overtly kind of disgusting part of the American character. But what did that mean? It didn't, it did not, you know quell racism like that is still ingrained unfortunately in our society right and so what did it do it really forced it to become a lot more insidious and a lot more subtle and in many ways more sinister because you can't point to it now i before it's very easy to point to slavery and be like that right there is the most racist thing and like, until you do anything about that, like, I can categorically say that you're evil. All right, well, you take this away and you create, uh, you know, subtle things like like redlining or uh, the fact that, you know, black Americans who served in the military can't get the same benefits from the GI bill or all of these like number of different ways that even people didn't realize, right? You go in to a bank to get a loan and all of a sudden you're getting denied for a loan. And the only reason you're getting denied is because of the color of your skin, but it doesn't say that anywhere. It doesn't say there's a law that black people can't get loans. It just seems to happen over and over and over again. And so this type of racism that's embedded, that's systemic is Is the hardest to combat because you can't just like point to it, you can't necessarily put your finger on it, but you know it when you see it. And I think the the most twisted part about it is growing up thinking that it doesn't exist, is like reading about history and feeling that America is the the greatest meritocracy, which it very well might be. And like in a weird way that says probably more about the world potentially than it does about America. But it doesn't mean that these inequities don't exist. That these like problems don't exist. Um. Yeah, I don't know exactly. Got, yeah, got it. No. On a, got on a well, road, let's,
2: let's go back. Let's go back to what you were talking about in, in the first segment, where we got really as high quality. Like on paper, of a high school education as, as we could have, and then we both went off to excellent colleges. We've now gone on to get graduate degrees, and I mean, so in that sense, we're probably in the top five percent, maybe the top one percent of like most educated people in this country. And I had never heard the word Juneteenth within five, last five before the last five years. I'd never heard of the these Tulsa this Tulsa massacre, and I mean, and quite honestly, who knows what the other things that I I have never even heard of, and of course you know, I, then you start to think, and you're like, well, I should have, you know, been broader in my own reading, and my own study of history. But then I'm like, I didn't, I didn't know about it. Like, there it wouldn't, there wouldn't even have been a, a way for me to go try to read up on the Tulsa massacre, because I, I didn't even know it existed. Yeah, uh, and in Tulsa, that's a problem. Yeah. yeah, right. And so like, I, I, was, I was trying to reflect on it being like, well, maybe I could have been better. And of course, maybe I could have, but I was like, if these things that are just beyond my my capability. And these are the things where I don't think that my teachers, whether it was in high school or college, were intentionally keeping these things from me. There might have been one or two that that knew and, and didn't choose to teach me, but I would say largely they didn't teach it to me because they didn't know it. And uh and this is where this idea of like critical race theory comes in and this this push to make sure that curriculums are infused with this unknown untold history because like you alluded to earlier Tulsa the Tulsa tribune they removed their headlines from those 3 days like they took them off the archives and so you couldn't go find them even if you wanted to like there was a concerted effort to bury like literally and figuratively what happened in in Tulsa. And so it wasn't until I believe like 50 years, the 50th anniversary where scholars really started digging in and being like, whoa, what happened here? And 50 years later before it's become more widely known. And so like, it's the debate over critical race theory. This is kind of where I was talking about the cynicism where the United States, you know, passes Juneteenth and makes it a federal holiday and everyone pats themselves on their back, right? And says, look, like we did it, <laughs> we solved racism here as I am um, as the legislatures across the country and uh, there's attempts at the federal level to ban the teaching of exactly like the history behind you. Yeah.
0: I, uh, I, 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 I almost want to like just challenge you to like, give me a little bit of the Republican rationale here. There has been long, like an idea that Democrats are teaching kids to hate America. Um, And therefore, I mean, yeah, part of me is like, you know, why should we like, let's not teach evolution because because the Bible doesn't say that that's true. Like it's like it's it's almost a weird like counterfactual that we don't want to tell the real story because the real story doesn't fit like how we want to think about our narrative, like how how we want the story to be told.
2: Yeah, so sure, I'll make the arguments. Um so part of it like the rhetoric around it. First first of all, I think critical race theory is also like poorly named. Like it doesn't Dude, it Democrats, doesn't come across like, like what it actually.
0: Kill, is. Just kill me. They the are like, terrible. You're so bad at naming things. All day long. Defund, this
2: is defund the police. Yeah. Yeah, this is defund the police all over again.
0: It's just horrible.
2: Right. So I, like I've read and people have been on the Republican side have been very upfront about, look, I want to paint this critical race theory as like an extremist ideology. And so when people, normal people who are not tuned into what the actual teachings of critical race theory are, they hear critical race theory and they think these horrible things. They think that they're teaching students now, they're indoctr- these liberal teachers are indoctrinating students to hate America and, and hate each other and be, be ashamed of being white. Right, that that's kind of the rhetoric around it, and quite honestly, Republicans, to their credit, are doing an excellent job of that. Because if you look at like how people, if you ask an average person on the street about critical race theory, they're probably like, eh, "I don't think I want my kids being taught that." Uh, and so, like the, we should talk about two things. One, what is critical race theory? So, not that I am an expert on this at all, but to me, it seems like, hey, I want to have a broader curriculum which includes the history of. Um, Black, Indigenous minorities in this country because our curriculum is, has largely been written by and written about white men. Uh, that's how I understand critical race theory. Is there like in academia, is there probably a little more liberal extremist version of critical race theory? Yeah, 100%, I believe that. But generally speaking, I think the idea is to uh, broaden the, like the social studies curriculum, the history curriculum in schools, which I couldn't be more in favor of. But let, let's, let me go back to the, the arguments against it. Um, it's one of the most ironic arguments against it is that this is trying to rewrite history. Uh, that, you know, we have, we have this history, and now we're going to go back and rewrite all of these things, which, I mean, <laughs> I don't think I even need to explain it. But the whole point is that, like, history was rewritten at the time. It was glossed over intentionally, so all of these, like, negative things that the United States did. And so this is just trying to actually write history more like the way it happened. Okay. But uh, other arguments against it was, and I think this is probably the one which I can see the most, is that, hey, the more you talk about race, the more that you perpetuate racism and, and racist ideals and perpetuate division in this country. And look, we, you know, racism, the way to end racism is to stop talking about race and to treat everybody equal Like, let's look at martin luther king's speech right i want my my kids not to be judged by the color of their skin by the content of their character so what's the way to do that is not look at someone as black or brown or asian or white you just look at them as you know the person and you don't think about race because if if you want racism to die you just treat everyone the same and this is while it's perpetuated by a lot of white people it's also perpetuated by a lot of Uh, educated black people and like maybe most famously like clarence thomas or um thomas sull who is a you know professor and a prolific writer Uh, maybe more i don't i shouldn't even put this woman in the same sentence as those other two men who are true geniuses in my opinion but like a candace owens today will will say things like right we'll we'll kind of be like the real racists are all you people on the left that keep talking about race and that's stoking division within our country and that's the one that's making you know White white kids feel ashamed of being white and uh, making black people hate white people and really it, this is like it's teaching it's tearing at the fabric of our country by teaching about these things. So those are the arguments kind of that I've heard against critical race theory.
0: Yeah, and and that one the like let's all be colorblind thing is is such an it's such an interesting argument because I think if you're liberal or progressive, it's one that you kind of like derisively just like dismiss but like you know if we look at other countries in the world like france in its secularism is very much into like let's pretend that religions don't exist and like nobody wears headscarves nobody wears crosses around their necks and like and then we won't have any you know issues between uh muslims and christians and jews and like that'll be and that and that'll be and that'll be that as long as we just pretend like nobody practice or as long as religion is just a privately held thing, then we can't have any religious strife, right? Like it is, it's not uh, a completely uh, kind of off the wall response to this. I mean, of course, in many ways, like race can never (laughs) quite, you know, fit into the same category as religion. But I think more broadly, the problem again, is that it just ignores all of these entrenched inequalities. Like it would be one thing to say that, all right, everybody's bank account goes to zero. We all give everybody a thousand dollars and you just start from there. Right. Like it's it's one thing to to wipe the slate clean and say that we all start over and now we can do sort of a race free society. But absent that, because we have built up, you know, generational wealth, which is passed down through property ownership and things like that, which we're not even talking about like centuries ago were forbidden for black people. We're talking about redlining that happened in the fifties. We're talking about the state of Oregon actually having in their like constitution, a a provision that prevented people from selling property to black people, like as late as like the eighties and nineties, like these things are not historical, uh, artifacts which we like to think of oh well you know slavery was like a couple hundred years ago right so it doesn't actually it couldn't possibly impact people today but i think the whole point of critical race theory is trying to understand that like you can't just dismiss the fact that like and 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 i'm talking about broadly here right like there are the clarence thomases of the world there are uh individuals that have done very well for themselves And like, I would argue, despite kind of the odds stacked against them, but even if you say like, they could only have done that well within a system like America, I think, I think I, I think I would agree with that. But I would also say that that doesn't mean that our system doesn't need improve, doesn't need improving. That also doesn't mean that we don't need to address like the historical entrenched inequalities that really make the world not live up to the ideals that we, that we sort of espouse.
2: Yeah, it, it's, it's tricky. And I think this is what's hard is that like, it takes a lot of nuance to say kind of what you said there. And I just like, I've mentioned this before, but I taught eighth grade for a long time and we taught, I taught eighth grade social studies and it was, you know, how America tracks with the world. And we talked about immigration and war and economics and, trying to give kids who sat in front of me who are overwhelmingly black and brown, like a fair representation of the history. And, but also to say that I still think the United States is the greatest country in the world and the, the place where you have the most opportunities to succeed. And the fact that it is, uh, you know, a melting pot, whether and how much melting we do, but like that we still welcome these people from all over the country. And I like, you sit in front of me and your your families. Or from 25 different countries like that's uh, that can only happen here in the United States right and so like that's the balance you really have to strike because as always the narrative not black and white it's not that America's horrible and you should hate it it's look America is wonderful and has these wonderful uh you know uh historic ideals and has done a lot of good and given a lot of opportunities to more people than perhaps any other country on earth ever has at the same time there is like systemic inequality in our country and like we should be aware of that and potentially as you guys grow up work to try to change some of those things. And I think that's where the nuance gets lost in the debate. Like I was saying earlier, when you try to demonize critical race theory as like this Marxist, um, you know, uh, anti-America theory, again, I'm not saying that, but anyways, exactly. Right. And I'm not trying to say that there aren't critical race theorists that don't believe in those things. I know that there are, but the point here. I, is to me at least is to try to give a fair and balanced assessment of the United States' history and the United States' present. And for me, critical race theory does what I think is good. In- a lot of ways is that it takes the responsibility off individuals, not saying that he was a racist and that she was the bad person and saying, look, that there are systems of injustice in our country that would have existed and have existed outside of any individual bigot that has had positions of power in our country. And it's these systems that we really need to reckon with.
0: I think that that is uh, very well said. So maybe in that vein of at least telling some stories that that maybe people have heard but only uh tangentially when we come back we'll do a little profiles in history
1: lift every voice and sing to learn
0: This this idea to do like a quick historical profile, I think I it stemmed a little bit from kind of what you were saying, like, all right, you know, we have Juneteenth. This is a holiday now. Fantastic. Another another three day weekend. Love me some like Memorial Day style barbecues, especially in the summer, like doesn't really get much better than that. Um, and you know it's it's a little bit of an unfortunate artifact i mean like I, I'm, I'm not even saying this would be specific to juneteenth memorial day veterans day um days that that are sort of but potentially in their inception or conception like uh intended for a bit of reflection as to like why do we have these holidays what are they for what are they commemorating um just kind of turn into to vacations and like I'm not. I don't. I don't blame anybody who needs a little extra day of R and R and is is using the opportunity to do so and perhaps unplug and maybe disconnect from some of these more difficult conversations. But um, as as we like to do as students of history, that that I think we fancy ourselves as, um, I thought that this would be a good opportunity to maybe highlight some of those stories um, of historical figures in the United States, Black Americans who had contributed a lot to um, society, to, to different aspects of, of like kind of who we are as a country today, but didn't quite get the Martin Luther King Day, um, Jackie Robinson kind of uh, kudos from, from history in, in many ways um, and may have been more of footnotes. Um, so I kind of, I, and I, and I tried to do it as a little bit of a surprise. So I, I was, I was curious as to who, uh, who you picked and, and, um, and why. It's a great idea.
2: Total credit to you. Uh, because I think most people growing up, you, you learned Frederick Douglass, then you learned Martin Luther King, and then you learned like Barack Obama, at least for the younger generation, you know, and it was like these like really historical one-off figures and that's clearly just not true. And like you think of how many white historical figures that we could just name top of our head. Like we could we could go sit here for probably half an hour and go back and forth on these white Americans that we've learned about. And glad like they should be acknowledged. But the fact that we could probably do it in one or two hands of Black Americans that we really and truly learned about in school, um, clearly troubling. Clearly, why we need to have like a more diverse, broad curriculum. Uh, so. Obviously, I mean, I don't know how long we're gonna do this podcast. I think we should do this every year because like we like we're like we could easily highlight we could highlight two figures for the rest of time and not nearly do it justice. Uh but I love this idea. So uh the person I selected was a woman named Phyllis Wheatley. Uh and so this is maybe like a deep, deep off the board. Like yeah, like if we go back to the like the draft, like this is I don't I don't know this that she was, was on too many boards <laughs> out there. Uh uh So the reason I picked her is again. Now I'm just talking about myself all episode. Um, But when we did uh, in like a black authors unit one one year. Uh, and we, they were centered around two books. Their eyes were watching God by Zora Neale Hurston and, um, Raisin in the sun, which is a play by Lorraine Hansberry. Um, but, but I wanted, I was real ambitious this year. I was like, I want to read a bunch of black authors leading up to Hurston who wrote during the like, Harlem Renaissance. And then I want to read black authors between Hurston and Hansberry who wrote the play in like the 59 or 60. And then I want to read like contemporary black authors. And, like, so we went from, we started with Phyllis Wheatley, who I'm about to talk about. And we ended with Todd and Easy codes. Um, and it was like, honestly, I was like, it's one of the units I'm most proud of doing. But even by the end, we probably, probably read Black authors exclusively for like from like January to like April vacation. Kids, kids were just like, enough, like we get the point here. Uh, so I scaled it back the next year. But all right, so Phyllis Wheatley was always the first uh, author that I talked about. And I thought particularly appropriate because she lived here in Boston. So uh, Wheatley was seized. She was uh, a child who grew up in Senegal, all um, Gambia today in West Africa and was seized from there when she was seven years old um, and brought here to Boston. And she was brought to Boston because um, she was really frail and sickly and they didn't think that she would be useful in the southern colonies to like work in the fields. And so they brought her up here to Boston. Um, She was bought by um, Susanna Wheatley uh, and John Wheatley, who are a wealthy family that uh, lived in Boston and Beacon Hill at the time. Um, And the Wheatleys brought her into the family and As they brought her in, they they kind of discovered that, perhaps most shockingly to them, that this girl was like really intelligent. And so, while she was there as a domestic servant to do household chores, and they certainly forced her to do those chores, they also provided her with a little bit of an education at home. Um, They taught her to read, or write, and uh, they also had a couple children of their own, and kind of gave her the same uh, education they gave their own children. So, you know, geography, history, literature, um, the Bible, all those things, and. Then Phyllis Wheatley starts writing. And um, by the time she's 18, she's written 28 poems. And the Wheatleys go out to you know Boston, you know, the kind of their genteel friends and in the newspapers, and they try to get um, Phyllis's poems published. No one wants to publish her poems, right? Like 18-year-old Black woman in like 1790, like, no, like uh, 1772, she was 18. Uh, so we're talking like pre-Revolutionary War. Uh, no one wants to publish her poems. So what they do, they go to London. London at the time, slightly more progressive, and they find a publisher in London. Uh, I should mention that there's a lot of criticism in London of the Wheatleys because they are at the, as they are parading this girl around as this like literary genius. They're also keeping her enslaved and like forcing her to like work in their house. So I, I don't want to like uh, lionize the Wheatleys at all. But I like I. But Phyllis Wheatley goes over there her poems get published and it's the first volume of poetry by an African-American in modern times um and it's I, I don't I don't want to speak for you but I can't imagine but before I did some history like before I taught this stuff I had never heard of her she grew up here in Boston she is the first black poet to be published and I had never heard of her uh so I just want to talk like a little bit about like her poetry um was like infused with uh like biblical and classical elements and there was of course pushback being like, she couldn't have done this. Like, I just don't believe that like an 18 year old black girl can do this. And the lesson to me is that like when you give anybody a good education, like people's talents just shine. Um, and so there were like, as her poems get published and she gets to be more famous, she does actually get to um, correspond with some pretty cool people. So Thomas Hutchinson, who was the governor of Massachusetts, um, James Bowden, uh, here, here in Boston, um, and then ultimately she starts corresponding with George Washington, who she gets a chance to meet. And um, her later life is a little bit sad, and probably speaks to like the unfortunateness. And she after um, after the Wheatleys die, they emancipate her. So again, they're not not necessarily the greatest people in the world, but they die. They emancipate her. She gets married. She falls. Um, she becomes destitute. Kind of falls into. Um, I don't know, she, she's still writing, but no one now wants to publish her, her poetry anymore. And she dies like penny, really penniless uh, in, in, a, in a sad way. Uh, and it kind of shows like the even as someone as famous and as talented as, as Phyllis Wheatley, because she's you know, a, a black woman in the late 1700s, uh, has none of the, the, doesn't get to enjoy the, the fruits of her labor and, and gets none of the, like, the trappings of her success. Um, but someone whose you know poems I used to have some of my kids my kids read and uh, really like brilliant poetry and you can unfortunately see why a lot of people didn't think that someone would be capable of this because it's it, I, it's to me it's as good a poetry as is being produced in the late 1700s um, and uh, despite like the her kind of some tra- sad and tragic ending uh, her life is is something that's really cool.
0: Uh, that that's definitely a story that I really knew nothing about. So uh, I was, um, you know, on these podcasts, you learn something new every day. And I'm also so glad you you chose a, uh, a poet and an author um, because my, uh, had I not gone with the person that I had gone with, I think Langston Hughes was going to be my, uh, my other choice. He's my favorite. I love him. Yeah. Yeah, but I, uh, I, I. I would have really liked to talk about it, but n- hey, next yeah. year June nineteenth, we'll be here, <laughs> or maybe we'll do something sooner. But anyways, I I I think that that's an incredible story, and I I also, um, I think I don't I'm 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 paraphrasing, and I'm gonna destroy it, so I feel bad about it. But but uh, I think Frederick Douglass said something about sort of like the greatest crime of enslaving. People, especially in the U.S., was the deprivation of like learning how to read and write and have access to an education, um, and that was you know a big push in in sort of what he was hoping to advance um, for the cause of black people. For Frederick Douglass was education, and somebody else um, in in that sort of line, and 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 maybe our homerism is showing here a little bit because this gentleman, uh, was from the great Barrington region of Massachusetts, um, William Edward Burghardt, uh, Du Bois, uh, known more, more familiarly as W.E.B. Du Bois. Um, so he was, uh, a little bit later, uh, born February, 1868. So right around, uh, you know, just following, um, Juneteenth in 1865 um, he was born really in the in the in the midst of what is known as the reconstruction period so that's like the 1870s um, which were in in large part uh, kind of an a, awakening of uh, of black America like in many places, people were able to vote for the first time able to own property for the first time able to work and be paid for their labor. Um, and now, unfortunately, shortly after that, we we see a lot of tightening and a lot of restrictions. But he is really born in into this age. Um, he goes to um, he goes to I forget exactly which college. He went to some college in Ohio or or, or uh, the Midwest. And and anyways, he spends a few years there and, and then comes back to. To Harvard University where he f- completes his bachelor's degree and then becomes the first African-American to earn um, a doctorate degree from Harvard um, I think in the early 19 early 1900s at that point and he really becomes one of the leading sort of thinkers about uh, sort of race and kind of the plight of black Americans so following reconstruction uh, many and and sort of the deep in many ways, like the disintegration in reconstruction up until sort of Plessy versus Ferguson, which was this kind of landmark Supreme Court case that said, yes, we can actually have separate and equal um, sort of systems where white is in one area and bla- and blacks are in another, right? So he was in this area, you know, grew up in reconstruction, but then sort of had to deal with the fallout of Plessy versus Ferguson leading into kind of what we understand as sort of the Jim Crow era, um, of segregation. <clears throat> and he really believed in this idea that for there to be true equality, like integration was going to be necessary. Um, and for that reason in particular, I think he was one of my favorite thinkers about a lot of these issues. And so he Um, was a sort of a founding member of this uh, group. I'm not sure if that's the right word called the Niagara movement, which was really kind of advancing this line of thinking in contrast really to this, like the Booker T. Washingtons of the world who were more like, you know, we just need to worry about our own and we need to just have enough you know education and opportunity that we don't need to worry about kind of upending sort of the white driven or white sort of dominant status quo he was really saying that we can't get the equality that we need to to be able to sort of survive and thrive in in, in the United States without challenging that kind of status quo so he was you know within even the african-american communities there were kind of competing lines of thought as to like how are we going to uh advance ourselves and really and really address some of these issues did sorry yeah that's
2: a great point no that was a great point uh because i think it's we studied booker t and um du bois as well and I think I just really loved it because it's like today when we talk about the Black community, like it's some monolith, right? We talk even like looking at like the Black kind of movement throughout history. It's, it's like almost like, oh, it's a continuum and it's like a straight line when it's not. Like we're talking in the early 1900s. There are real academic debates between two of like the brightest men in America, between Washington and Du Bois, about how the Black community can best, you know, like live in this country. And Du Bois, we used to read um, an excerpt from one of his most famous works, The Souls of Black Folk. He talked about this, this is always have, where like you are 100% American, and you're also 100% Black. And the there's a real, I think that that hasn't left to today, you know, and uh, there's a real struggle for Black people to how do, how do I kind of navigate that and like loving living in this country and being a part of this country, but also loving my blackness and like the separateness that that makes me and I uh, like that tension between, you know, do I assimilate, which is maybe more of what Washington was trying to say and try to fit into this white society and kind of lead into my Americanness, or do I really separate myself like, you know, uh, maybe Marcus Garvey or the people that were saying like hey like the pan-Africa movement like let's kind of move back to Africa we don't belong in this country and like my blackness where Washington was kind of like I acknowledge that this is a real challenge for black people because you're both 100 percent American and 100 percent black but it could also be this strength where you neither need to assimilate into this white culture nor do you need to separate yourselves and just go back to Africa like we can really bring the strength of black culture and weave it into the fabric of America I also love Du Bois so I'm thrilled that you picked him.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I think for for everything that you just said, he was one of those that refused to like look at things in terms of of black and white, no pun intended, but really that there are so many shades of gray and and, and exactly what you said like in, I am a hundred percent American, also hundred percent black. How also do I reconcile the fact that America has not loved my blackness the way that I'm yeah. trying to, yeah. to love it? You know, I, um, I think that those are incredible sentiments and, and, uh, you know, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll leave it with this also an excerpt from his book, the souls of black folk. Uh, he said here, here lies, the tragedy of the age, not that men are poor, all men know something of poverty. Not that men are wicked, who is good? Not that men are ignorant, for what is truth? Nay, but that men know so little of men. I I think it's one of like the most uh, poignant phrases in that. So much of our struggle as a society is our lack of understanding of how other people live, how they feel. and you know, what are the problems that befall them? Because all we know are the things that, that we struggle with. Um, and that broader understanding, I think he was always saying is what is going to drive about a more equal society. Um, and it's something that I think that we're, we're getting towards today. I mean, it's, it's, it's going to be a struggle. It will always be a struggle. Um, But on this day, you know, as we as we now commemorate June, Juneteenth, which will, you know, our children will always know this as a holiday, but we'll remember the time before, you know, um, I think this is a this is a befitting maybe an end to this one. That was wonderful.
2: Um, I hope everyone has a great weekend and and enjoys celebrating Juneteenth. Cheers.
1: We stay up all night on Garner Avenue Debating all the issues of the day No agenda, not yet, talking heads running around till we forget where it was we began Some mornings you were away, some morning left your ego bruised but what I wouldn't give for hope I used to find in a case of lion's head folks of different minds because even though we did not share the pains we share that American idea, friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz need an early morning buzz learn the hard way but to those who would die upon that hill, quiet truth is better than right. Somewhere along the line, we seem to have forgotten. The value sometimes being wrong. Some mornings you away, some mornings let your ego bruise, but what I wouldn't give I used to find in a case of lion's head And folks of different minds Because though we didn't share Opinions we share, loud American ideals Friends made all the arguments In an early morning bus I need an early morning bus There's hope behind the bluster Because though Main Street may not sell Full of force, just like you and me When we have trouble seeing The human for the politics It's time to find a better way to disagree Some days you win Some days you'll leave your ego through But well, I wouldn't give For hope I used to find And change the lion's head Folks of different minds, because though we did not share opinions, we share that American ideal. Friends made all of arguments and a an early morning buzz. Oh, what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of Lions Head. Folks of different minds, because though we did not share opinions, we share that American ideal. Friends made of arguments in an early-morning buzz I need an early-morning buzz